we are we are continuing in the chronological life of Jesus. We're in the last week of his life, that Tuesday of the last week of his life. And you might remember last time that uh, uh, that there were three questions that were asked of Jesus. Three questions that were asked of Jesus, and he's answer, he answers all three of them. And the three questions that were asked of Jesus by his disciples, and he's now up on the Mount of Olives and he's instructing them, it says that he sat down and he began to teach them, which is the, the typical position of a rabbi. You go into an Orthodox church, uh, Orthodox synagogue today, they will, they will sit down, the, the rabbi sits down and teaches. And the three questions were, what is the sign of the destruction of Jerusalem? What is the sign of your second coming? And what is the sign of the end of the age? And Jesus answers all three questions. There are four chapters in the Gospels committed to this. In, in, uh, uh, so you've got four chapters. One in Mark, two in Matthew, and one in Luke. So a huge amount is given to this. And so you might say, you know, there are those who are interested in prophecy, but Jesus, his disciples were, so he answered them. And And... Jesus answered the third question first, which is typical. People ask you, they say, I have three questions. And the, the last one they ask is the one on your mind. And the, they, he answered that. And so we covered that last time. What are the signs of the end of the age? Now he goes back to the first question. What's the sign of the destruction of Jerusalem? What is the sign that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed? And he addresses that in Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21, verse 20. He gives them a sign for the destruction of Jerusalem. He says in verse 20 of Luke 21, verse 20, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those who are in the midst of the city must leave, and those who are in the country must not enter the city. Because these are the days of vengeance, so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. Woe to those who are pregnant, and to those who are nursing babies in those days. For there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So Jesus is speaking to them, here is the sign where you're going to know Jerusalem will be destroyed. Now we know historically when it happened, it happened in 70 A.D., was the destruction of Jerusalem took place. And this was, it says, as it says here, this is the day of vengeance, it says in verse 22. This is the vengeance that is coming from God upon that generation that as he had, Jesus had prophesied to them because of the unpardonable sin, they had denied Jesus when he was physically present on the basis of his being demon-possessed, they said. And as a result of that, when he did demonstration after demonstration to them, and then they accused him of demon possession, then he said, he proclaimed the unpardonable sin, he said, on that generation. Remember, the unpardonable sin is nothing that we can fall into today. It was on that generation for people who saw him with their eyes and claimed that he was demon possessed. That is the time that vengeance is going to come on that city. So what do we know historically? What we know historically was that in 66 A.D. the siege started. Now, if you go to Jerusalem today, you will see how it could take four years to, to, see, to attack that city. It is built up on a hill. 
the, 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 uh, the walls are extremely steep going up, and then there were big walls, and the remnants of those walls are still there. Now, they've been built and rebuilt at, at Byzantine era and things, but you can see the original stones, the Herodian stones, huge stones. And so remember, to take this city, you have to climb up these steep cliffs, and they would roll stones at, down at you. It's really hard to take the city. And so it took the Romans four years before they could build the rampart to get up in, in, into there. But it started in 66 AD. The Roman general Gallus came from Caesarea, which is on the Mediterranean, and he came to attack the city because they had had enough of this Jewish rebellion because the Jews rebelled in 66 AD. And uh, uh, so he came to attack the city. If you were to drive from Jerusalem to Caesarea today, it would take about r roughly two hours by car driving today, driving at 55, 60 miles an hour. Uh, uh, hour and 45 minutes to two hours, say. And so, but of course, he's coming with his army, so you can, you can estimate what, how many days that would be for him to, to be able to get there. They besiege the city, and then the believing Jews who live in that city, so there were 20,000 believing Jews living in Jerusalem at that time. Now, what do they see? They see these armies surrounding Jerusalem and they remember this prophecy of Jesus. He said, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. In other words, those who are not in the city, but in Judea, flee, just leave. And those who are in the midst of the city must leave. And those who are in the country must not enter the city because of the day of vengeance. So he's warning them, you've got to take off. But they're stuck in the city. How are they going to get out? There's a siege around them. They can't get out. So interestingly, what happens is, there was a, a Jewish guerrilla movement, and that movement would, was, was cutting off the supply lines for this general. So this general had supply lines from Caesarea, down toward Jerusalem, and the guerrilla movement was cutting off the supply lines. So General Gallus goes and he has to stop the siege for a while while he goes back to Caesarea to regather supplies and reform his supply lines. On his way back to Caesarea, he gets killed by the Jewish guerrillas in, in uh, um, the, the, the Jewish uh, uh, guerrilla movement. He gets killed on the road to Beth Haran. He gets killed, and you could go on that road today. And so he got killed on that road. But then, and it was during this slight let-up for a few weeks that the believing Jews left the city. That's when they fled. So you see, the prophecy was, Jesus said, leave the city. Well, how can I leave? Conveniently, God has it such that the siege is lifted. For a few weeks, they flee from the city. So 20,000 Jews that are believing Jews, those who believe that Jesus is the Messiah, who were living in Jerusalem, along with 80,000 Jews from Judea and the surrounding parts, even from as, as far up as, as the Golan Heights, all fled across the Jordan River to a city called Pela, which is one of the ten Decapolis cities, which were Gentile cities at that time. They were across the river. The, the, the Roman attack never went across the Jordan River into that area. That's present-day Jordan right now. Just if you cross the Jordan River, you're in Jordan from Israel. And so that, that river separates the two. And it's not like, you know, when we think of rivers in the United States or Canada, you know, a river's like, you know, a huge thing. I mean, the Jordan River is, is a brook. It's a tiny little thing. Now, there is a rainy season where it can really fill up. But if you're not in the rainy season, it's, it's, we would look at it and say, that's the mighty Jordan River. I mean, it, it's, it's, a, 
it, it's smaller than our bayou by a lot. It's, it's a tiny little thing. But in any case, it's across there. So that's where they go. And so then, he, so you can see how God protected his people. And then the destruction came in 70 AD, that they besieged the city again, the destruction came. And then he says, he talks about how they're going to be fall by the edge of the sword. 1.1 million Jews fell in that destruction between 66 and 70 AD. There were many, many that were killed, but the believing Jews were not killed, interestingly enough. God saved them. It was based on this prophecy, which to us is just a little passing comment, but to them they took these things very seriously. Then he says, and, and, and uh, uh, he says, Jerusalem, the last part of that in, in uh, Luke 21, verse 24, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are complete. So the time of the Gentiles still isn't complete. There, there's, there's, uh, uh, there have been four periods of time where, where the Jews have controlled Jerusalem temporarily. This is the fourth of those. It is, they will be there. This is the last of the four. They will continue to control that until halfway through the tribulation. So there were three times they controlled it. The first time the, the Jewish took it over during the Maccabean period, that was 165 to 63 BC. So for 102 years they controlled Jerusalem. There was another time, then, then, uh, uh, then they lost it to the Romans. And then the second time that they got temporary uh, control was in 66 to 70 AD when they rebelled from the Romans. Then they were overthrown. The third time was during the revolt of the Bar Kokhba revolt in 132 to 135 AD. So for a three-year period. Then they were thrown out again. They didn't have control. They have control again since 1967, the Six-Day War. So Israel is again in control of Jerusalem. But we know from the scriptures that they will not be thrown out ever again from Jerusalem. Don't worry, they won't lose control. You're worried about Hamas, you're worried about Hezbollah. Trust me, we've got the word of God. They're not going to lose control of Jerusalem until three and a half years into the seven-year tribulation. Then they will lose control to the Antichrist. And they will, they will flee at that time. They will flee uh, again across the Jordan River uh, during that period. Uh, halfway through the, the uh, uh, halfway through that tribulation, so that's what Jesus begins to speak of. And now he's going to to so he's answered now the, the the two questions: what's the end of the age, and what's the sign of of the uh, the destruction of Jerusalem? Now there's the third question that he hasn't yet answered, and give us the sign of your second coming. But before he answers that, he has to educate them a little bit. Because before his second coming is going to come the period of tribulation. This is so great. You say, how do you know all this? It's right there in the Bible. It is there. And so, so these prophecies concerning the future are there. And so we have prophecies that have been fulfilled and we can look back and see their fulfillment. And then there are prophecies that haven't yet been fulfilled. So that concerning his second coming... He says, first I've got to fill you in, I've got to tell you about the tribulation. So before the tribulation starts, the church, those believers in the church are going to be taken. That's in the rapture. We have no idea when the rapture is going to happen. That can happen at any instant. Jesus' second coming is only going to happen when the leadership of Israel says, we want you. 
Jesus. We want you, Yeshua HaMashiach. We want you, Jesus the Messiah. We want you to come back. We welcome you. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus said you would not see my face again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And because of this, we know that Jesus is not coming today. And he's not coming tomorrow. And he's not coming the next day. Because this is not going to happen until the tribulation period. And we've not entered the great tribulation. Great tribulation is a very specific time period of of, uh, seven years. He's given us the number of years. He stressed it again in the number of weeks. The Bible stresses it again in the number of days. So however you want to calculate it in days, weeks, or years, it is it is seven year period. And so so he begins to talk about this. But before he answers that 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 the second of the three questions, he answered three. One, before he talks about this, he's going to begin to talk about, he's going to begin to give this prelude on, uh, on, on the, the, uh, the tribulation. So, this, we're going to pick this up in Matthew, Matthew chapter 24, and we're going to read from verse 9. Matthew 24, verse 9. The tribulation is split in two, right down the middle. Three and a half years in the beginning for the first half, three and a half years for the second half, because something amazing happens right in the middle that separates those two halves. Jesus says in Matthew 24, verse 9, Then you will be handed over to, the, to be persecuted and be put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. Now remember, this doesn't apply to believers. Believers are already gone. When the church leaves in the rapture, believers are going to be taken just like this. Boom, they're going to, they're going to be raised up. Those who are alive are going to be raised up to be with him. They're going to be raptured. There are going to be some that are going to be left that are going to see this and give their hearts to the Lord. They're not going to be taken. They weren't there. They were not believers at the moment of the rapture. But some are going to believe after that. And he says, you're going to be persecuted now by all nations and you're going to be hated because of me. And now we go on in in, in Matthew chapter 24, verse 10. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and will deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So what he's talking about is this seven-year period. There's a seven-year period. We don't know how long from the time of the rapture to the time of this tribulation period there's going to be. But the tribulation period will start with the signing of a covenant between the nation of Israel and the Antichrist. That we know. This is talked about in the book of Revelation, talked about in the book of Daniel, and it's talked about here in the Gospels where Jesus is talking about this and also in Second Thessalonians. And we'll begin to, to start to look at that. So the first thing that he says is going to happen during this tribulation period is he says... Uh, those saved after the church's departure will be persecuted. These are actually the fifth seal saints in, in, in the book of Revelation, chapter 6, verse 9 through 11. It talks about when the fifth seal is broken during this tribulation period. It talks about these saints. This is the same saints that it's talking about. In Matthew 24, verses 10 and 11, it talks about false prophets are going to arise and going to lead many people astray. In in Matthew 24, verse 12, it says, Sin will increase because the restrainment of lawlessness will be removed. God restrains utter lawlessness. 
that restrainment will be removed and sin is going to increase enormously. So if you look in that same portion, Matthew chapter uh, 24, Matthew chapter uh, 24, verse... um, Let me show you Matthew 24, verse uh, 10. Verse 10 says... um, at that time, many will turn away from the faith and will, and, and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of many will grow cold. All right. So he talks about this increase of wickedness. And so this is spoken about more precisely. So if you turn over to 2 Thessalonians, turn over to 2 Thessalonians. And we're going to be reading from, uh, let's start reading from verse, oh, well, just to give you the context, let's start reading from verse 1. So you see the context of Second Thessalonians chapter 2, Second Thessalonians 2 verse 1. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So what's Paul doing? He's comforting them. He says, look, don't be discouraged. The day of the Lord hasn't come. There are many prophecies that have yet to be fulfilled. He's comforting them. Verse 3, let no one in any way deceive you for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. The man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. So that is the Antichrist. First, the Antichrist must come. Who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Now, is there a man sitting in Jerusalem in the temple, acting as if he's God? No, that has not taken place yet. So the Antichrist has not arisen. He has not taken his seat in Jerusalem. This is not going to happen until the beginning of that seven-year tribulation. Who opposes, in verse 4, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. So it talks about he is restrained right now. The Antichrist is not loose. He is restrained right now. And I've heard all sorts of things. When I was your age, I heard a preacher on the radio talking about how Ronald Reagan was the Antichrist. That sounds funny now, but you know people would say such things. Because Ronald Reagan apparently... I forget what his middle name is, but there's six letters in his first name, six letters in his middle name, six letters in his last name. And so this guy was saying, you know, this is the Antichrist, it's so obvious. Look, we know these things are not going to take place. It's very specific, the sequence of things that are going to of how it's going to occur. So it says, uh, uh, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work in verse 7. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by, by the appearance of his coming. So when Jesus returns, he will put an end to the Antichrist. But the Antichrist will reign for seven years, for a seven-year period. 
And so this is what it speaks about. And so one of the other things it tells us in Matthew, so we can turn back to Matthew chapter 24. It says those who endure to the end will survive physically. They will survive physically alive when Jesus re- returns. In other words, those that, that are alive till the end of the tribulation are going to see the reconstitution of Israel, the, the uh, uh, recovery, the, the rebuilding of, of, of uh, the Messianic kingdom, the building of the Messianic kingdom. But he says in Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, Matthew 24, 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. So he says the gospel will be preached in the whole world to all nations. And we sometimes feel that this is the church's responsibility. We've got to do this. This is not the church. The church is already gone. This is what's happening during the tribulation period. Who are these, these people that are going to preach it? It's 144,000 Jews. This is the people who are going to preach it. So turn to the book of Revelation. Turn to the book of Revelation. This is the last book of the Bible. We're going to turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 7. Book of Revelation, chapter 7. And we'll start reading from verse 1. And this I saw, four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind will blow on the earth, or on the sea, or any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. So who are these bondservants of God that are going to be sealed? Here's what it says, verse 4. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. So you've got 12 12,000s. So you have 144,000 Jews are now sealed. These Jews are going to be the ones that are going to take this gospel all over the world. It's Jews that are going to start evangelizing on behalf of the Messiah Jesus. This is not the church's responsibility. People say, well, you don't know who those 144,000 are. It says right there, they're taken from the tribes of the sons of Israel. If you're not Jewish, it's not you. All right? And if, if, you, if you believe in Jesus, you're not going to be there at that time anyway. You're going to have all sorts of tribulations in life. This is not to say you're not... All sorts of troubles are going to come to us in life. We don't know what tomorrow has. But we're not going to be in the seven-year tribulation. Period. That's a different period. We will have our own little tribulations. That's a specific period. It's going to be 144,000 Jews. What's interesting is if you read through that that list of, of, of tribes that they come from, you don't see the tribe of Dan. The tribe of Dan is not there. The tribe of Judah is actually lifted, uh, the, the tribe of um, Joseph is actually listed twice because it says the tribe of Joseph and then it talks about the tribe of Manasseh. Remember, Joseph had two children, Ephraim and Manasseh. He got a double blessing. 
both Ephraim and Manasseh, he got two, came from him. And so how does this resolve itself? Well, Dan is never on the list. Well, why not? Why is, why is God being so cruel to Dan? Because Dan was such a rebellious tribe and did so many contrary things to the will of God that they're excluded from this. So there's, no, there's none from, from Dan and the double portion went to Joseph because you got Joseph and you have Manasseh. So it's named after Joseph or also under Joseph is Ephraim and then also one of his other sons, Manasseh. That's how they get the 12 fulfilled even though Dan's not in there. And so you see that it's 144,000 are going to go and they're going to witness. And who are they going to witness to? They're going to witness to the Gentiles. So the Jews are going to take the gospel message to the Gentiles. How unique is that? Well, it's exactly how it was in the book of Acts. The Jews took the gospel message to the Gentiles. So we think we need to bring the gospel to the Jews. They had it first, but most Jews don't know, so we need to bring the gospel to them. But here it says in, in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, And after these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count from every tribe, from every nation and all tribes of peoples and tongues. What that means, that's, that's reference to the Gentiles. These Jews are going to go out and share, and all these Gentiles are going to come in from around the world, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshipped God saying, Amen. Blessed and glory, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Then one of the elders answered saying to me, These who are clothed in the white robes, who are they? And where have they come from? And I said, My Lord, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who came out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason they are before the throne, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. They will hunger no longer, nor thirst any more, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor will any heat. For the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to the springs of water of life, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Those 144,000 Jews in the middle of the tribulation are going to go out, and they are going to preach the gospel, and there's going to be multitudes of Gentiles come in, and that's what they're going to do. They're going to be right around that uh, throne of the Lamb, worshiping Him and praising Him. So this is exactly as it's prescribed of, of how it's going to come. So he hasn't yet answered for us, give us the sign of your, your second coming. He's talking about the, the, uh, the tribulation. He says, first I've got to teach you the tribulation. Now I want to close again, going back to 2 Thessalonians. So if we go back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, I want to close with a particular verse, and this is in verse 10. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 10. What we've covered is we've covered this amazing period where many, many believers are going to come out of that tribulation period. The church is already gone. Many believers will, will, will come and, and there's going to be a terrible time on the earth. But you see constantly, God's looking out for believers, saving 20,000 out of Jerusalem. All the believers out of Jerusalem got saved. You see this constant care. But I want you to read Second Thessalonians chapter 
chapter 2, verse 10, and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. You know, these are really poignant words. People perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. If we don't love the truth, great hardship happens in life. Let's first take the unbeliever. We hear the Word of God. An unbeliever, someone who's not accepted Jesus, can hear the Word of God and go year after year of not accepting. But he says that, that this truth has come. It says they refuse to love the truth. Or as the New American Standard talks about, the love of the truth. The love of the truth. They refused to love the truth and so be saved. There is a way of salvation. If you've not yet received Jesus, I say, why are you waiting? Open your heart to the truth. Say, Lord Jesus, fill my heart. Come into my heart. Open your heart to the truth and be saved. Say, Lord Jesus, forgive me because I'm a sinner and be saved. And then the other, the others of us, that don't love the truth. Believers so often can say, well, I believe in Jesus. And you believe in Jesus. You've accepted Him as your Lord. Your salvation is good to go. But you're going to bring great problems on your life by not loving the truth. And I've seen it. And I see it. It, 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 it pains me sometimes to see young believers. And I see the decisions that they make in their lives. The decisions that they make that are devoid of of any asking of the Lord, what would you have me do? What do you think of this relationship? Devoid of, uh, of doing what's right according to His Word and the misery that they bring upon their lives. Because I've had the, the, the... My life has been long enough that I've been able to watch students. And I've been, I've been in, in school my entire life. I went to, to play group at the, at the age of like three and a half or four. And I've never left school. So I've been in school my whole life. I've never really had a real job. I just I've always worked, worked uh, around school and things like this. And so, so um, but what I've seen is I've seen a lot of students go by. And I've been teaching. I've been a professor since I was 28. So I've seen decades of students go by. And I see the decisions that we make affect our lives. If you're not married, you pray and you say, Lord, please bring the right person into my life. Because if you get that one wrong, it is real problems. really is. Say, Lord, please bring the right person into my life. Don't let me choose my own way. Open the doors, close the doors, Lord. Bring the right spouse into my life. Say, Lord, what would you have me do with my career? And a lot of this is, you know, you just say, Lord, open the right doors for me. Close doors, open doors. And a lot of times we, have, we might have several things on the table and we have to ask God, Lord, give wisdom, give insight. And we pray. We ask for counsel from others. We seek the Lord and then allow Him to direct us. Sometimes there's only one option. It's not the option that I want, but it's the only job you get. And you take it. Sometimes you're trying to decide whether I should go on the mission field for a couple of years or go directly to work. You pray. You pray and say, Lord, you lead me. There are great things that happen walking with God. He watches over you. 
He gives you things that you could never ask or think. As it says in Jeremiah, He gives us more than we could ever ask or think. If, if I think back to my time in graduate school, there is no way that I would imagine that I would have all that I have, that I would be in the place where I am. I was with, surrounded by, by people. I was, a, I was a postdoc at Stanford. And I remember we were all applying for jobs and all these things. And a, a guy made a, made a uh, you know, a, a, just a, a funny comment to crack. He said, you know, Jim will never get a job with all these, you know, he's up against Sudakar and all these. There were guys that I was in school with there that they had been studying chemistry since kindergarten. I mean, they just knew so much. I wonder how could just a student know so much? And I felt there's no way, and I remember going and, and, and praying at midday and saying, Lord, I don't know if I'll ever get an academic position. And wherever we interviewed, we all interviewed at the same places. Like I'd interview on a Monday and then on a Tuesday, and then we'd just oscillate between these different locations. That's when there were a lot of jobs out there, actually. And, and, uh, um, and I got the job before any of them. I mean, at all the different places. And I know this because they'd call the lab. And they'd ask for me, and I'd say, well, I've already accepted a job here, and they'd hang up. And then they'd call right back, and they'd ask for the next guy. And, the, and then I look at their careers. What's happened with our careers? I'm just telling you, there's so much blessing that we miss because we don't take hold of the truth and love it. You take this Word of God and you make it your meditation. And God will bless your life and lead you. Because we don't love the Word, love the truth, we perish. Great problems arise. Because we don't love the word or love the truth. Proverbs chapter 1 talks about this. And it's just the need to love the word and to love the truth. Just because you're a believer doesn't mean you're ready to walk in life. It comes through constant prayer and constant seeking of Him. And you blow it all the time. I've blown it all the time. My, my, my life is a series of just blowing it. But you come back to God and you repent. What's amazing about David is not that he sinned, Lots of people sin. What's amazing about David is that he was able to recover from his sin and come back to God and say, Lord, forgive me because I'm a sinner. And God said, you're the apple of my eye. Me? To what I've done? That's the way God spoke of him. Because there's something beautiful in repentance. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word, for the truth of your word. And Father, I pray for these young people. Father, first of all, the young people that know You. I pray that You would keep them ever studying Your Word and loving the truth. And as they meditate on the Scriptures, that You would so guide them. And Father, I thank You for mapping out specifically for us these words of prophecy. Thank You, Lord, for revealing these things to us through the Scriptures. Thank You, Lord, that we can rest in this, that we can be comforted in this. Thank You, Lord, for Your great comfort in this. Father, I pray for those here that don't know You. Lord, I pray that they would humble their hearts, that they would love the truth and be saved, and that the mercies of God would rest upon them. Father, draw them to Your Son, and I commit this to You in the name of Jesus. Amen.